All right, I've got another exciting guest lined up for today. His name is David Nakano. David is an account executive for the Silicon Valley-based AirKit, and he's someone that I've been working with very closely over the last few years. I'm excited to have David on the show for a few reasons. One, he fairly recently transitioned from a career in recruiting into the software sales world. And in his time in SaaS so far, he's managed to work his way up to very large deal cycles, working with some of the world's hottest brands. And so I wanted him to share that story. Uh, I also love his ability to go in and research his prospects and the companies that he's doing business with. He thinks of things like an investor might. And he gets more into detail during the episode about how he approaches not only his pipeline and researching his prospects, but also how he researches his potential employers. So he has a whole framework that he uses to evaluate SaaS companies to go work for. So a lot of value in this episode, and he's a fantastically talented seller, negotiator, and someone who I've taken a lot of ideas from myself. With all that said, welcome David. And we're live. David, what's going on? Oh, Woodbury, it's so good to hear your voice, man. <laughs> yeah, it's been a while. <laughs> um, and for the listeners, David is uh, joining us from, is it Jackson Hole? No. We're close to it. <laughs> a smaller town than that, Sheridan, Wyoming. Oh, Sheridan. Okay, that's right. Yeah, my dad lived in, in Sheridan for a while. Really? That's, yeah, yeah, he did very briefly as a, as a child. So that's, oh, I have a small connection to, to that part of Wyoming. That's right. That's yeah. um, small world. That is another thing I want to talk about. Uh, just I'm thinking out loud here now is I think the listeners will really be interested in your story. So just to, I'll take a step back here for, for everyone listening. Uh, David and I, uh, we've been colleagues now for about three years and uh, we just, I think we have a, you know, we have a really good working friendship and, and uh, we bounce a lot of ideas off of each other. We've worked now together at two different companies, two different startups. And uh, yeah, we've got some exciting stuff for both of us in 2022, but I'm excited to bring David on because I think one, uh, you have a really interesting origin story, which we'll definitely get into. Two, you live in Bozeman, Montana. And I think your, your proof that a SaaS career can really start anywhere in the country. Now, Bozeman's a special place because there are quite a few other, you know, software companies there and, and some hit, there's some history of software and SaaS exits and things like that. But I think it's a super interesting story. So yeah, career transition into SaaS fairly recently. You don't live in San Francisco, New York, uh, Seattle, Austin. You live kind of off the grid, just like I do now. And I think there's a number of other things that, we, that I want to cover today on the show, just because uh, in my mind, and I'm, I mean this with, with, with full sincerity, I think you're one of the like really fast movers and shakers in this industry. You, you're doing things in your career that took me a lot longer to accomplish uh, in terms of you know earnings and deal size and the types of brands that you're working with. And you've done it in, a, in my mind, a record time not living in, you know, New York or San Francisco. So I think you have a lot of really interesting things to share with the audience. And I want to stop talking because I want to hear you <laughs> tell how you broke into, first tell us about your career before SaaS, and then maybe give us a, a, an idea of how you transitioned from what you were doing before into software. Yeah. Uh, well, first, uh, Woodbury, those are super kind words. <laughs> I don't know if I deserve those totally, but- um, Oh, thanks, man. Well, and uh, just to throw it back on you, uh, you know, I've I've been, you know, to some extent lucky in that I've gotten to work with you, who's who really knows what they're doing. 
Um, you know, there are a bunch of other folks I've learned from. Uh, so it's been good. You, you mentioned Bozeman. Um, you know, it's been really nice to have the right people around me um, as I've sort of grown up uh, relatively quickly in, in SAS. And uh, yeah, so, you know, looking back, um, you've been in the uh, SaaS sales industry for a couple of years now. Um, but prior to that, um, you know, I was, that's probably the biggest, you know, what, whatever takes up the most amount of space on my, my resume is I was a executive recruiter for five years and I specialized in manufacturing roles in the food and beverage world. So like I worked with uh, large milk yeah. and cheese producers, <laughs> <laughs> which is uh, seemingly about as far away from technology and software as you can get. Um, right, right. But it was, you know, it, it's funny as I've become accustomed to sort of a traditional path in SaaS, you know, folks start out as SDRs and then you move into a mid-market role and then you move into an enterprise role and then maybe you go into leadership or maybe that sort of leadership individual contributor path bifurcates earlier in your career. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that's, that's sort of the traditional route, but, you know, being an executive recruiter, as I talk to folks that come out of the BDR world, very, yeah. very similar. Um, it is a lot of grinding on the phone yeah. and getting you're getting rejected and being lied to and being hung up on. Um, you you really have to get a sense for who people are and and what motivates them and and why they want to talk to you if they want to talk to you. Um, I was so going to make a. I was going to make a comment earlier that you, you sort of bypass the standard SaaS career path, which is you go and get an SDR job at, at Oracle or, yeah. you know, one of the big sort of well-funded or public software companies, you were able to bypass that, but I don't know that your path was as easy, honestly, because like, okay, you didn't spend 12 to 18 months as a BDR and SDR at some big company. Rather, you spent what, five, six, seven years grinding it out as an executive recruiter. So your training was a lot more intensive. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, the, as an executive recruiter, you are your own BDR and you're also your own closer. So you, you have more of the, you have more of the sales cycle that you're responsible for. So, you know, there were, there were quarters that were really tough, but then there were also quarters that, you know, I was probably making more than most BDRs. So um, there was, uh, it has its positives and negatives, but it was, it was really great because I remember the first, the first deal I was able to, to get done, the first client that I, I brought on was a VP of manufacturing because he worked for, uh, it was formerly a, you know, basically a fortune 1000 company that got bought by a fortune 500 company. And he had been in the dairy industry for like 25 years. And basically like the first time I called him was like, Oh, you know, drops a bunch of F-bombs and then basically tests whether or not I can <laughs> stand up to it. <laughs> right. And we're, we're negotiating basically we're yelling. At, I mean, to some extent we're yelling at each other to over, um, you know, what the, the fee is going to be and what job orders I'm going to get, that sort of thing. And, um, yeah, you know, he finally like, yep, I trust you. Let's get this thing done. Uh, and then I went and, and built a, 
you know, in, in the executive recruiting, you're, you're, you're looking at your, what your billing is. And so I, you know, I built a, a few hundred grand with him. I didn't necessarily make a few hundred grand, <laughs> but I built a few hundred grand. Yeah. So. so it is. But yeah, that was sort of the trial by fire. You know, I, I really hadn't prior to that. I'd kind of done, I'd worked for like an educational startup and then worked for like uh, worked in admissions at a college. Like I didn't have a traditional sales background, but yeah. Um, but yeah, that being an executive recruiter really taught me what it means to sort of run your own business. Because I, I was responsible for signing contracts. I was responsible mm-hmm. for, you know, I'll put put marketing in quotations. Marketing was you know, business development and making cold calls. Um, yeah. And then I was responsible for maintaining those, those customer relationships that I did get. Yeah. Um, yeah ensure that my my profile as a recruiter was you know, somebody that was trustworthy and uh, that was honest and full of integrity and, and ultimately was going to produce. Um, it was a great it was a great seller's education. I'm, I'm really thankful for for my time as an executive recruiter. Yeah, I really it's I really do think in some ways I won't I won't call it starting backwards, but you you know you you went to combat before you went to boot camp. in some ways. I mean, you, you, I guess that's one way to put it because, because you were doing yeah. the job of closing deals and, and, you know, negotiating and those kind of things before anyone who might've started on a standard software path, who was just starting in the SDR pit mm-hmm. and focused only on lead gen. And it seems, you know, from my observation, working closely with you, you mastered the ability still to, to generate your own pipeline. Um, but what always, what, what, what has blown me away of working with you over the last couple of years is that you didn't need any enable, you didn't need any enablement for tr- uh, negotiating and the closing aspects, which is usually, you know, something, a skill set that, like I said, took me a lot longer in my SaaS career to get to was where I was comfortable consistently closing deals or that I felt like I had mastered the closing aspects of it. And it is more of the art form of sales. And I think it does take most SaaS sellers, you know, it's different for everybody, but it's it's going to take a couple of years. You got to get out of the SDR world and into the mindset of actually having a, a you know a quota and closing deals and and you know honing in on that craft. And it seems like for you, you were pretty quick to get there, uh, transitioning into SaaS. So tell us also. So how did you know? Were you interested in getting into SaaS, or did you sort of land in it? Um, give us some background there. Yeah. Um... So good question. You know, I, by the end of, of my time as an, as an executive recruiter, um, you know, I was, I was pretty much, I, I knew that I'd sort of tapped out from a, from a recruiter, recruiter standpoint. There wasn't, I was at a small, small company and, um, you know, it was great, but I knew that, you know, I was probably going to be doing the same job um, you know, until I retired and I, I was looking for something else. Um, my, and from a family perspective, we wanted to, to get out West. Um, you mentioned Sheridan, Wyoming. Um, my, my wife grew up here. Um, and yeah, we wanted to, to get a little closer to family. We've got two little kids. Um, yeah, that's awesome. So I started looking, I started looking for, for jobs in, in Bozeman in particular, because I knew and they had done some research that, oh, you know, there's a pretty diverse economy there. Um, somebody who has sort of a non-specific skill set, but is generally good with people. I was like, I can probably find a job there. 
Um, it did a little bit more research. I was like, oh, right now technologies. Mm-hmm. Um, so started applying to startups in Bozeman. And um, yeah, and, and came across a, a company that you and I both worked for. <laughs> yep. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, that company is Twitch. You can, they're, they're still on my LinkedIn profile. I'm really proud to have worked there. Same. Uh, uh, I, I can't say enough good things about, about them, uh, you know, about the, the folks that we worked with, about the product. Um, let me, let me ask you this. Was there, was there any hesitation when you were interviewing at quick, did anybody express hesitation in the fact that you hadn't come from a software background Yeah, Uh, and you don't have to say who or anything like that. I'm, you know, again, more for the listeners, because I know a lot of my listeners out there feel like there's uh, gatekeeping is like a weird word to describe it, but they feel like there might be barriers of entry. It's that whole conundrum and there's tons of memes about it online, which is, okay, you can have this entry-level SaaS job, but we need five years of SaaS experience uh, in order to get this entry-level SaaS job. And look, and, and I get asked a lot, so how did you do it? How did you break into SaaS? And I'm like, it was so long ago. And I don't know that I could articulate exactly how it worked out for me other than just I was doggedly persistent about it and wasn't going to back down until I got into one and applied all over the place. I got tons of rejections first. Yeah. I mean, it didn't happen overnight and, you know, I had to move to a new metro area in order to make it happen. And I, I knew that and acknowledged that and was willing to do whatever it took. And that, that was a small price to pay in my mind that ended up paying a lot of big dividends. But I, yeah, I think a lot of my listeners are, you know, feel like there's some gatekeeping. I, again, I hate the word gatekeeping because it just sounds like we're a bunch of assholes in this industry and we're trying to keep people out. I don't think that way. I think, you know, SaaS is big tent, right? There's a lot of room in the tent for, for everybody. And yeah. with the way that the cloud computing industry is growing still and the world that we're heading in, I can only imagine there being more opportunities in, you know, technology sales and, and revenue generation. So I, yeah, tell us about that a little bit. I'm, uh, you know, I'm just curious how you overcame that objection when asked, Hey, wait a minute, you're not from a traditional software background. Why should we let you come sell software? Yeah. Well, so I, I don't think I realized it at the time, but there are looking back, I, I realized I, I probably did a few things right. Um, and there are a couple of ways that I actually just got lucky, but the few things that I did, right. Um, you know, I highlighted the, the ability to solve business problems mm-hmm. in the resume and in the cover letter. Um, so if you're able to understand what you do right now, how that impacts a business, and specific, especially if you're client-based, you know, I, I was, uh, you know, I was, you know, in a, in a nice position and that I had a client facing business building position, you know, as an executive recruiter, um, I was selling to new business. I was selling to a, you know, I was selling a a job to candidates. Um, and I, I was selling a lot and I, and I was responsible for the bottom line of the business. So any, any way that you can, um, uh, effectively communicate, your business sort of leadership, business ownership, business acumen, that's going to go a long way. And so if you can look at, you know, and we can get into this in, in, a, in yeah. a second, but you know, if you start to start to hone in on what companies you want to, you want to take a look at, um, you need to do a really good job of understanding what problems that product solves 
why it's important and specifically why it's important to the buyer. And if you can, you can start making that case, uh, you know, in the first interactions that you have with the company you're going after, I think that really, yeah. that's really meaningful. So, you know, to switch this in the past, we can kind of, we can use that as a little bit of an example. Mm-hmm. Um, we know, I, I understood what Quit's value prop was pretty easy. I mean, just doing a couple of hours of research. Bear in mind, I didn't have any experience, but you can still yeah, get a get a good a good sense for what they're going after, who their buyer is, by just looking at their looking at their website. Um, while you're you know, in, in being able to do that, you can t- you can tailor a cover letter and you can tailor mm-hmm. a resume and you can highlight certain things that are going to uh, align with the value prop and, and why, um, you know, how you might be able to sort of align your existing skill set to, to what would be valuable for that company. Um, that, that's one thing I've always observed about your style is that you're, you're sort of a business person first. And yeah. I don't know if I've done an episode on this on my show yet, but I believe this is something that I've brought up in previous episodes, which is, when I approached my SaaS career, I actually didn't want to think of myself as like a salesperson or a SaaS person or anything like that. I first want to just be a good business person. And in doing that or in thinking of it that way, I end up being a better salesperson because I'm focused on like the holistic aspects of being just good at business and not just sales because business is so much more than sales. And I was talking to another colleague about this just yesterday that the best SaaS, the most elite SaaS sellers out there, the ones that are doing the biggest deals and have the most production and, you know, thought leadership they're they tend to be really good operators. Also, they're not just good at the art of uh, selling, but they're also very good at just business and organizational stuff. And I noticed that you seem to manage your, you know, your, your book of business, like, uh, you know, like a business person, not just like a salesperson. The other way that I've tried to think about my career is I'm, I'm an investor. Uh, I've always like, just from early on in my career, I thought of myself as, as an investor. And I know that might sound a little bit silly because no, I don't live on wall street or work on wall street, I should say. And no, I don't manage a hedge fund or anything like that, but my time and my experience are, you know, in my mind assets And my career is an asset and the places I've worked at are all, you know, quote unquote investments that I've made in time. And, you know, in a lot of cases, money also was involved with that. And I've thought of my career as an investor, you know, what, how can I pick the the best bets that are going to help me get to where I want to be and, and align with my goals and, you know, what investments can I make in my time? What companies should I go work for that are going to give me the most leverage? And I think you probably think about it in the same way. And you probably even one up me on research skills. Cause you're, you're pretty good at going like super deep into like the fundamentals. Like I've seen you do it with, with, with and we're going to get into your formula in a second. Cause I think the audience is going to love this. Um, cause I had never thought to do anything like this, but which is, you know, basically you manage your SaaS career, like an investor, like a business person. So business person is like the operational skills and the organizational skills, like get really good at, you know, managing your pipeline and managing your expectations and command and control of, you know, your, your results and your output. That's sort of the business person mindset. And then the investment mindset or the investor mindset, I should say is like, okay, so my next career move, how is that going to increase my leverage by some multiple, just like a, a hedge fund person probably thinks about it. So anyway, I'm going to back off and, and let you, uh, I'm trying to remember where we were going with all that, but I appreciate that you have approached your career and it seems like you went into looking at quick as a, as a first, you know, software role and saying, 
yeah. hold on, this is going to leverage my skill set in a way that's going to help springboard me into other things. And sure enough, you know, here, here you are. And, and back to my earlier comment, you, you're doing things in your SaaS career that took me, you know, five, six, seven years to accomplish versus, you know, two, three years for you. Yeah. Well, we were, we'll go back to, um, to yeah, we need to talk about the, the investment mindset, which is something I sort of cultivated while I was an executive recruiter. Um, but uh, uh, you're going back to actually just breaking into SaaS. You, aside from doing research, aside from just sharpening your, your business acumen and being able to communicate that effectively from the jump, um, the guy that actually hired me, he had a similar background. He'd been in financial sales for decades, mm-hmm. um, yeah. or at least a decade and a half before moving into SaaS. And he had a perspective outside of like, you know, just only SaaS, BDR, uh, you know, mid-market, enterprise. Um, he had, <clears throat> yeah, he had the, the ability to, to like look around and be like, there's talent in more than just software sales. Right, um, right. And, and to some extent, that's where I got lucky um, that he was the hiring manager. Um, by the way, he's, I've got nothing but great things to say about him. He's an, he's an awesome leader. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, it, you know, if you're, if you're not in SaaS and you're, you're looking to break in, you know, do, do great company research, but also get on LinkedIn. And this is going to be a helpful skill for the future. If you, once you do land that SaaS job, get on LinkedIn, know the org chart, know who the hiring manager is, the buyer, so to speak. Uh, know that person's background and understand how their background might give them a different perspective on who and how they hire. Um, And yeah, that's one of the sort of hindsight things. I was like, oh man, if I hadn't had a hiring manager that had a career outside of SaaS, I may not have gotten the, I may not have gotten the job. Um, But having, being able to tell the right story to the right person is really, really valuable. And that's just like, that's a great sales tactic in general. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, yeah. Storytelling is huge. And that is interesting that that, that's a great tip that I hadn't really thought about before for anyone out there who's wondering how to break in, go and read, you know, and we'll get to some methodologies here in a second. And I'm actually going to do a whole separate episode on how to sort of find your why in SaaS. Like, cause I do think it's important that you're serving the right buyer persona like don't get into SaaS sales and just do it just because you're getting into SaaS sales and end up, you know, selling to a buyer persona that you don't like or selling a product that you're not passionate about. You got to try to, you know, narrow down your, your niche a little bit. But then I think that's a really interesting tip, which is go and research some of the sales leaders out there and the ones that maybe came from a a similar industry as you or outside of the industry are probably more likely to take a bet on you. And one anecdote that I'll share is that, a few years back, I was coming out of several sort of busted up startups and I don't want to call them failed startups, but just startups that didn't work out uh, on the sales side of things. And I was the first hire for, for a string of these, by the way, a string. Um, And I had a sales leader who had also come from that background and gave me another opportunity. So, you know, it's really good to go and research the actual sales leaders, the, the people that are making the hiring decision and understand and try to extrapolate, you know, who are they, 
from their LinkedIn profiles, what, what career experience do they have? And would they be likely to, to take a bet on someone like me? And I think you can, you can make some of the, you can come to some of those conclusions. If you look at those backgrounds and say, wait a minute, this person came from out of the industry, or this person came from a bunch of failed startups also more likely to, to take a chance on me again. So that's a really good tip that I had not in hindsight, I can recognize it, but I right. don't know that I've been like formulaic or pre-calculated about that. But I think someone who's out there looking to, to break into SaaS can go and actually do that kind of research. Yeah. It, it, I think about if you're uh, maybe a, a veteran and you're looking to break in, you're sort of entering civilian life. You look for somebody that, um, uh, you know, look for somebody that also has a military background. Um, oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. If you do any prospecting with LinkedIn, you have got to go get set up with Surf. That's S-U-R-F-E. It's a tool you can use to add new contacts to your CRM system directly from LinkedIn in seconds. I'm using it every single day. I add contacts, follow my deals, keep track of notes, and it ends up saving me a bunch of time on prospecting and outreach, which means I can spend more time moving my deals along. The data is always 100% accurate since I don't have to copy and paste all the fields over from each and every contact that I want to put in my CRM. Instead, Surf does that all automatically with just one click in about 60 seconds. The team over at Surf has put together a very special offer for fans of sales players. There's a link down in the show notes and you can use the promo code JWSURF5. Don't forget the E at the end of Surf. That's JWSURF5 for 5% off your first year. Don't spend another minute doing things manually. Go get set up with Surf. Speaking of research, uh, you have a really, <laughs> a couple weeks back, David showed me his, and I'm, I won't say to you, I'll let you kind of share, you know, where you're at currently in your professional journey. Uh, but I will say that you were in a position or a headspace where you were evaluating your next move in SaaS. And I think this is another topic that, a lot of my listeners will find really interesting because a lot of them are maybe stuck in their first SaaS role or second SaaS role. And they're wondering, you know, there, there's all kinds of different journeys, right? How to get out of the SDR world into a selling, you know, account executive position. How do you get out of mid-market into enterprise? Uh, how do you go from selling, you know, an enterprise product to a strategic uh, sales team somewhere? So these, these are all the different journeys that one SaaS seller can take or how to get into the management suite, right? So all, all sorts of different paths, but you are currently, uh, or you were a few weeks ago anyway, sort of evaluating what your next move was going to be in this fun game that we call SaaS sales. And you showed me, I, I'm going to call it a methodology. I, I don't know if you would call it that, but I think it's a methodology. <laughs> and it was not something that I had ever considered. I, um, but basically you had sort of a, an approach to, to searching for the right SaaS company for yourself. And th again, this is a question I get a lot from listeners, which is, God, there's, you know, there's 20,000 SaaS companies out there. There's probably more than that now, by the way, that's an old metric, but you know, 20, yeah. 30, 40,000 SaaS companies out there. How do I even begin to narrow down what SaaS company is the right fit for me? Which one I'll be happy at, which one's a great company to work for. Cause there's also a lot of, there's a lot of stinkers out there and I've seen that, you know, time and time again, but, um, tell us about how you approached searching for your next opportunity in, in SaaS. It was very research-based, very formulaic in my mind. Yeah, it's funny that you call it a formula. I, I suppose it is now that I, I think about it. But in the moment, I was just trying to figure out what's what's the right thing. And, you know, going back to sort of, I mean, you, you, you put it 
you put it so 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 perfectly that you know time is an asset um you know, you've got and you know that the the work and the effort that you put in that's that's an asset and so i think as you know sellers and especially in the market that we're seeing right now we can be uh, we can think like investors um you know we've got lots of opportunities to invest our our time and energy and skill um and we need to deploy that capital, whether it's you know, temporal or social or whatever. Um, we need to deploy that capital effectively. Yeah. Um, and and uh, that's exactly what it reminded me of is you came to me, you were sharing, you sort of, you know, opened it, we opened up a Zoom when we were chatting and you were sharing with me your, your research approach. And it was, it was just like an analyst at, I don't know, Goldman Sachs probably approaches, <laughs> how do we pick the next round of bets in our portfolio? But in this case, you're only making one bet. So you've got to, you know, try to make the best Don't bet you screw can. it up. <laughs> Don't screw it up. Uh, I mean, there's, there's grace if you do screw it up, trust me on that one. But yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, I, I didn't mean to, to talk over you there, but yeah, walk, no, us, no, through, yeah. walk us through the, the, the research. So um when you when you think about one, I I I have got the leg up that I know that I I really like uh, customer experience and customer support technology. So that was uh, I decided that's the 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 space, that's the buyer persona I want to keep selling to. So I think it's important to establish that if yeah. you if you've mainly sold to developers and you want to keep doing that, great. If you want to get out. Uh, of selling to developers or selling the line of business, you've got to make that decision on your own. And you've got to sort of, there's some real self, self-reflection that has to be done. Yeah. Um, yeah. But anyway, I, I know that I want to continue to sell to a certain type of buyer. From there, and here's the great thing. So much of the work that we, we care about is so much of the work of like guessing who has great product. There are other people that care about that as well people that have time and money and resources to devote entire companies, entire businesses to figuring out which products or services are the best in their particular industry or yeah. the best in their product vertical. Mm-hmm. Um, how often do we look at, you know, if, if, we're, if, we're, you know, if we're working for a SaaS company, you know, Gartner and Forrester, they're going to put out their, their magic way or their magic quadrant or the Forrester wave. And those can be company makers or breakers. Right. Um, so those two organizations in particular are a huge resource for us as, you know, folks that are looking for, for what the next good gig might be. Um, they've done the work. <laughs> if, now, um, oftentimes, you know, in the top right quadrants of both of those reports, you're going to find mm. your giant companies. Um, right. You know, the Salesforces, the Oracles, the whomever. Uh, right, Microsoft. Microsoft, AWS. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the, they're going to be in the top right hand corner but if you look towards the middle of those quadrants those are still really high performing companies that might be contenders uh to to that that upper right hand quadrant um and so and, as you're sort of looking at, go ahead yeah i was gonna say just to take a quick step back for anyone out there listening that that's not familiar with forrester and gartner uh, and, and for those who've been in the industry for a while, you're probably familiar with, you know, bodies like Forrester and Gartner, and there's, there's other ones out there, but those are the two primary research, you know, organizations for, for brands. Basically what they do is their whole business is predicated on 
you know, essentially going and doing third-party evaluations of software products or technology products. And then there's a score of different, you know, assets that they can put out. They do like these total economic impact surveys. They do, uh, you know, content on ROI. They do content on, you know, best products for this or that problem in your business. And so a lot of enterprise business buyers or even, you know, corporate or mid-market business buyers will go out and they'll download the latest Forrester or Gartner report. And, you know, Forrester, again, might do something that goes and evaluates a SaaS company's product and talks about all the ways that it assists in, in you know, solving problems for the business. And so just to, again, just for anyone who's not familiar with what those are, I wanted to provide a little bit more context. So they publish all these different reports. Most of the time you have to pay for those and they can be kind of expensive. Uh, they're both expensive on the SaaS side because you have to pay to go get the research done on, you know, as a third party or from the third party, I should say. And then, you know, a lot of times you have to subscribe to their service in order to download some of the content and business people or, you know, executive leaders will subscribe to it because they want to make sure they're keeping up on what the trends are in tech. So what David did was basically use some of those assets because they're third-party research. They're, they're you know, I think unbiased. I mean, I'll, I'll assume they're unbiased. Yeah, I mean, they... It's as good as you're going to get, probably. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah, it's it's the best research you're you're likely going to get from a third party without. Uh, yeah, I mean, you can cut it. You can try to do your own research and and dig in, but this is going to be a lot more in depth with a lot more permission from the SaaS companies. So you can go and look at rankings for different categories, and if you have a good idea of what category in SaaS you want to sell in, you can really narrow down your target companies to go work for to a pretty small list. So talk to us about you know, some of the resources yeah. you use. Well, and one of the other things that, that Gartner in particular puts out is a bullseye, which I had never seen before until I started oh, to right. research. And this bullseye sort of aligns different segments of an industry. Um, so like if we look at customer experience, for example, you might have CRM, you might have agent desktop, you might have um, uh, quality assurance, like tall quality assurance. Um mm -hmm that each one of those industries is going to get a, a, a score um, and also sort of like on, on future value and also um, how pervasive it is um, in, in, you know, in, in, you know, in the industry and, you know, as an actual product. So how many, basically how many installs do they have? And then, um, or what the, the future value uh, or how many installs they might have in the future. If that made sense, I don't know if I'm doing the best job of describing it, but basically the closer you are to the bullseye is the more market adoption you have. And the bigger uh, the, the circle one gets uh, on the actual bullseye is the future value of that industry. Um, oh yeah, this is an interesting, so was this a public resource or did you didn't pay for that? Did you to, to get I access to it? I definitely didn't pay for it. Okay. Uh, I think I probably had to put in my, like, you, you pro I think I probably had to put in um, an email address to get the download because there are, there are marketing materials. Uh, like mm -hmm. so a lot of these are, are marketing materials. And so exactly. Yeah. Just, just like, you know, some of the, if you're, if you work at a SaaS company now, your marketing team has dated, dated resources, dated assets. And so Gartner and, and Forrester both have a lot of dated assets. So as long as you supply your email address, you, you should be able to receive the, the download. Yeah. What I can do is I can round up a couple of these and paste them in the show notes. 
for this episode. So if anyone wants to see, it's, it's hard to, it's tough to describe the visual, but you know, essentially that target as David describes has, it's just really interesting. And it's, I think it's a lot easier to look at it and, and figure out exactly the, the, the kind of info you want to gather from it, but it just has some really unique insights on what companies are going to accelerate their growth, what companies are starting to sort of stagnate. And by the way, I think in general, if you step back, all of SaaS is literally, or is all of SaaS is, is in an upward trajectory for the most part. Um, some technologies, I guess, are starting to become a little bit antiquated. Uh, but this one will just show you which ones are going to be white hot in the next, what, five years? What was the time horizon on it? Yeah, I think it was like in the next like two to three or five to 10 years. But I, the time frame is, is relatively like short term. It's not they're not predicting the next 20, 20 years. years. They have no idea what, what happens to tech in yeah. 25 years. We're all going to be wearing Oculuses and exchanging, <laughs> exchanging, exchanging ship coin or something like that as our primary <laughs> currency. I'm just kidding. Um, that's not investment advice, but uh, <laughs> you get the idea. No one knows what's going to happen in 25 right. years. Yeah. Um, um, will, will the metaverse take off? What does Web3 look like? Yeah, I, I'm not here to answer those questions. I do want to get to that uh, in a second, though, because I, I, I want to finish this thought about Forrester Gartner, but I have also noted that you've, de you know, you've delved into technology itself deeper than most SaaS professionals, SaaS sales professionals go. But let's finish the thought around Forrester and Gartner. Anything else yeah. that you used as sort of a, uh, you know, North Star to try to help pinpoint what opportunity was going to be the next one for you? Yeah. Um, so being able to, um, to, to leverage those two, those two sources as, you know, just, just get an idea of where the, where the puck is going. That's sort of the, that, as I visualize how I want to take my career, I want to, I want to go to where the puck is going. So, you know, you're, right. you're skating towards that point where, where there isn't anything yet. Um, but there will be. Um, so those are the two main, the main things. And then once you get in, once you sort of hone in on an industry, then it, I think it's really helpful, you know, go through the Dartner and Forrester waves. If you can't find them, the top performers always publish them. So if you know, if, if you're looking to get into, let's just say CRM, because it's, it's huge, um, you know, Salesforce yeah. is going to publish the magic quadrant and they're going to say, here's where we are at the top, right. And look at everybody else. That's not in the top, right. Um, mm -hmm. So you can always go to Salesforce um, and or not Salesforce, but whatever is the, in the top, right. And say, okay, you can, you can find your, your magic quadrant there. And then, so that gives you an idea who the players are in that industry. Um, and then it's really helpful to go to G2 or um, what's the other one? Shoot uh captera yeah captera that's it g2 is probably the the main one to go to but just go and look at, at customer reviews there, there's also trust radius plug plug for trust radius because my wife worked there oh nice <laughs> yeah um but go to go to those software review sites and and do some digging there um and then once you sort of landed on a couple of companies in a particular industry that you that you think are probably going to be good fits Go to LinkedIn and then go start tapping your network. As soon as you know, that's the time to act um, and, and start looking for ways to network in there. Um, 
or uh, just start submitting applications um, and write good cover letters. I think if you're gonna submit an application blind, you, you've got to really, I think a good cover letter goes a long way. It's a pain to do, um, but it'll help you crystallize a lot of your thoughts and it'll make the interview process a lot easier if you write yourself a good cover letter. Would you be willing to share a cover letter template with the listeners? And what I can do is I can take it and paste it into like a public doc of some sort and paste it into the show notes here. Yeah. Yeah. I, let me, uh, yeah, I can definitely do that. I might have to redact a few things, but yeah. 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 Or just, just kind of like the, give you the template. Yeah, totally. Just wiping out some of the personal stuff, but also there's a framework. Cause I think it brings up an interesting one. I, I don't, I don't know that I've formally written a cover letter in a long time. I'm also, right. you know, I guess, luxurious position of I've been in the industry long enough that I have networked for the last several rounds of opportunities, or I just have someone reach out to me and recruit me. Uh, that will happen to most people. I think at a certain point in their career, they'll start to just get enough traction on their own and experience that you should get recruiter outreach from, from folks in the industry. Right. But I do agree that, you know, cover letter sounds like it, it might sound like an antiquated or an outdated way of doing it. I don't think it has to be super long. You're, you're, I'm guessing your template's probably what half a page or one page yeah. at most. Yeah. yeah, it's not long. And it's it's almost not for the company. It's really more for yourself. Um, oh, that's a good point. That's a really good point that it's a, it's a way to sort of articulate or, or consolidate your, your thoughts and your vision right. down to one page that can hopefully sum up what you plan to accomplish. Exactly and right. yeah. And what I've done, I guess I'll, I'll tease this out. I may have talked about this on previous episodes, but I, I basically do a 90 day action plan too, when I'm interviewing for a role. Yep. Uh, this is something that is easier to do when you have a few years of, of selling experience and some results to put up, but you can basically, you know, sort of showcase what you've accomplished so far from a numbers standpoint, and then make some, some assumptions or make some forecasts for what you think you might achieve in a new role. And, you know, you can put that out there during an interview yeah. process and it's incredibly powerful because you're basically saying, Hey, uh, you know, I'm confident enough in my ability as a seller that I can, you know, estimate roughly these forecasted results when I come in the door at your company. Uh, basically it's my business plan for coming in the door because, you know, most sellers they're, they're the CEO of their territory or region. And that's sort of like a cover letter on steroids, but yeah, a template for a cover letter and at some point, I'm probably going to share more about how I put together these 90-day plans. Um, but I think, you know, having, to your point, having a document that helps you sum up what you intend to, to accomplish in the role, but also, you know, taking insights from your background and prior results is, is very powerful in sales. I wanted to dig into, yep. so again, back to my, I mentioned this earlier, an observation that I've seen working with you is that you tend to to be able to go pretty deep, or at least you push yourself to go really deep into the actual tech. And a lot of the SaaS sellers that I've worked with over the years have sort of glazed over when you get to a certain point. And that's not a knock on anybody. Not everybody is curious or interested in how the sausage gets made, so to speak. But what I've found is that you, you do seem to want to go figure out, you know, how the ones and zeros power the solution that solves the bigger business problems, at least to some extent. And maybe, you know, yeah. you're, you're not writing code uh, or you're not uh -oh. you know, shadowing engineers yet, but I think no, you do, not yet. but tell us about how you've sort of honed in on your tech chops and, you know, whether that's courses or just reading 
how have you sort of refined or, or, or built that skill set of being a little bit more technical than your peers? Yeah. So um, I think curiosity drives a lot of that. I just want to know how it works. Um, yeah. it, it, it's um, especially because I didn't know anything prior to, to joining SAS. And so I, I kind of assumed that everybody was really techie. Um, it's not the case. And I've had plenty of, of managers say that, yeah, knowledge is not necessarily power. So be careful. Yeah. Um, and to some extent, I, I believe that, but also I think that this is a new world and buyers, they can smell BS from a mile away. And as a seller, if you're not, if you're not somewhat familiar with how things get strung together, then I think mm -hmm. you're really disadvantaging yourself and you're disadvantaging your buyer. Um, I think one of the, the things that I, I bring to the table when it comes to a, site, a deal cycle is that people trust me because yeah. I am, you know, I, I'd like to think that I'm smarter than the average bear, um, but not too smart that I might be obnoxious. <laughs> so, um, and I think part of being, being a little bit smarter is just diving in and digging into the technology. Um, you know, at this point, Every seller should know what an API is and why it's important. And I think probably why it's important is, is, is what people should be looking for. Um, why? That's really why. good. Yeah. You know, the, the what is not as important um, because it's, it's not something that I can probably understand. Uh, to use an engineering term, like I'm not going to be able to grok the ins and outs of all of um the ins and outs of all of the, the technology that, that you know, people like you and I sell. I'm just not mm -hmm. going to, it's not going to happen, but why, why is something was built that way is really, really important. Um, because ultimately the why affects our business buyers. The why is, is why, uh, is why uh, our, 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 our buyers work with us. Um, and if you can understand the why, you can apply that to, to one particular use case, but you can also sort of thread that out over the entire enterprise. Um, you know, for instance, you could start in, start in the contact center, but if you know the why for that particular product might affect uh, HR, then you, mm -hmm. you've got a new, a, new, uh, a new buyer persona and you should go grab them. <laughs> you should go do that. Yeah. Um, it yeah. can be difficult, but it can really help you sort of, you know, It'll help you expand, but I think probably more importantly, you'll be seen as a trusted advisor. Um, and especially for a lot of folks, and, and maybe this is specific, I don't know the buyer persona for folks that aren't in, in customer support, but I think for a lot of folks in, in our industry, they, they want to know too. They want to know how things work and they're, they're just as curious as, as we should be. Um, and so if we can meet them where they are and, and have those conversations, I think that's, that's really valuable for um, for having a good relationship, but also yeah. helping them make good decisions. Yeah. I've personally found, and I've, as you know, I've really, you know, put myself into the engineering world. And, and the way that I did that was I worked for a lot of very early startups that were predominantly engineering folks on staff. And I was sort of forced and, and thrust into it in a way that I had to make myself kind of uncomfortable. And I had to frankly be the dumbest guy in the room a lot of the time. Right. Uh, but there's an advantage to sometimes being at a, you know, early stage startup where you are the, the from a technical standpoint, the dumbest person in the room. And I, I don't mean to, you know, dumb is a, a mean word, but, uh, you know, to, to be the person that has to really catch up on, on some fronts. Yeah. 
Now, my only other warning to getting too technical is as a seller, your role is not to be the technical expert. And so to your point, it's great for credibility. If you can have, you know, high, high level discussions are, are table stakes. You've got to be able to have high level discussions about the technology and the why and the impact. But to your point, you know, going a couple of cuts deeper and having a little bit more context and, and the why around, you know, integrations and APIs and some of those terminology, ter definitely the acronyms and terminology, uh, and then having, you know, familiarity with the concepts of software development, like agile, uh, you know, methodology is just very helpful uh, from what I've found to like understand how people think about building software. And then, yeah, again, knowing the terminology, knowing uh, a little bit of the lingo will help go a long way. But the only thing that I would warn anyone against is just don't become the know-it-all because buyers also know that you're the sales rep and you can't, if you are the one, you know, talking all of the technical speak, then your credibility is going to start to diminish, which is kind of, a, you have to really find a fine line. I think you've found that from my observation that you know enough about it, that you can hold your own, but you don't sit and try to, uh, you know, be the expert on any given call where, you know, a lot about the tech, because again, technical people, developers, DevOps, IT will, will say, wait a minute, why is the account executive the one going deep on these concepts? That doesn't make any sense. That's, that, that's not what this person's job is day to day. So now there's red flags uh, that there's not, you know, credible tech individuals on the call. So, and, you know, this is, especially enterprise sales 101 is bringing the right people to, to the right conversations. And a lot of times that's bringing your solutions engineers, your, you know, technical leadership, your, your, you know, demo, uh, you know, folks that can do demos in a technical way, but it does absolutely help if you have the background and the why, and that you go a couple of cuts deeper. I think it's a competitive advantage in the field to at least have the context, but then to have the restraint to say, I'm going to stop talking because there's somebody who's better suited to answer that technical question. That's not me. And I don't want to diminish the, the credibility of this conversation by trying to be a know-it-all. Um, so that's my piece. And I've, I've yep. learned that the hard way. <laughs> so no, and that's I'm, why I'm I share right it. There. I'm right there with you. I, I will say getting to know the folks that you know, if you've got a particular problem that, that a, a prospect is facing and you can bring the right person yeah, I think as salespeople, we often think like, oh, all, all engineers are the same. That's not true. <laughs> Some of them have you know, specific passions and they're, they're, they, they've worked on certain things or they're really good at solving X, Y, or Z problem. Knowing who that person is and how they work and how that can be the right solution, the right person to talk to for your prospect, that can also go a long way too. Right. Um, you know, we're, I think, you know, I, I, I when I talked about sales and people ask me, why am I, why am I in sales? It's just, I really like solving problems. Mm -hmm. um, now I may not necessarily have the solution, but we can go find the right person who does. Um, and I think that's a, that's a big piece. And, and that's probably why, why I cared about learning the technology in the first place is because I like finding problems or, or solving problems. Um, and technology is really good at that. It's really good at solving problems. Um, yeah, most of the, most of the time, <laughs> not all the right, no. the right technology can be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, even just being able to go just a little bit more and understanding, um, you know, who does what and why they do it. And 
how how a solution that they can build or they can uh, they can talk to, why that's important to your customer or your prospect. I think that goes a long way too. Um, uh, yeah, I, I gotta say though, you you really do need to be curious. Like if you if you don't care about finding out the technology, then um, I, I think it's gonna be really difficult in general uh, to to succeed at sales. So it, at sales, so you really need to cultivate that curiosity. Yeah, I agree. And and I've always said curiosity is the most underrated skill. Uh, passion is incredibly important. And I think empathy is really important, especially in enterprise sales. When you have multiple different buyer personas working with you, there's tons of stakeholders. It's important to show a little empathy. And then I think a little bit of competitiveness helps, uh, you know, it, it can fall off, but I think that helps. But I do, I do agree. Curiosity is probably one of the biggest, most important skills in selling. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, I, it, and that kind of drives you, that drives me a lot to do some of this research that I do. I don't know if it's necessarily a hundred percent valuable, but I, you learn a lot of stuff and there's, you, you get to add more data points so that when you, you face something new, whether it's in a sales cycle or just in life, you at least have something to, to reference it to. You know, I listen to a lot of people that like love history. I'm not a historian mm-hmm. by any means, but it is really interesting whether you're facing business problems or just sort of like personal life problems, you know, being able to look back at history and, and find people that have faced similar things. It's really helpful to have some of those data points around to at least forge a path forward. Yeah. I love that. I, I it's, I've been delving more into history rather than reading business books. I'll read history of business books, as you know, oh, uh, you know, yeah. the Steve jobs, yeah. Uh, the behind the cloud so, is a book that I'm going to pick back up again. Now that I'm in the CRM space, uh, I want to understand how Benioff did it. You know, there's, there's just tons of, and then I want to also branch out of tech and, and read like one of the ones that's on my radar is the Wright brothers. Apparently there's a really great biography of the Wright brothers. That one, you know, I love airplanes. I love history. I love innovation. So I think that's going to check all those boxes, Yeah. but yeah, I agree. Yeah. And it's, um, I don't know, you know, Jesse, what you, you know, as you sort of, I mean, you're pretty technical yourself. I mean, you can build websites and stuff, which is more than I can do. I mean, what do you, at what point do you realize you need to sort of shelve your brain and just like let other people talk? That's a good question. Uh, now I'm in the hot seat. I've gotten better at just sort of how, this is how we talk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'm glad. I, hmm. It's taken a long time. I, I think I've overstepped too many times in my career and tried to be, I, I, yeah. for those who work closely with me and know me, I can sometimes have a know-it-all personality. I don't, I'm not trying to be that person, uh, but I, I'm passionate. And so sometimes my passion spills over and I do probably come across as the know-it-all in the classroom. Uh, so I've had that experience a couple of times in, in my career where I was so confident that I knew the answer. And then I ultimately diminished the credibility because some technical person's like the way you described that made it clear to me that you didn't know what you were talking about, but that you were going to go ahead and bullshit us anyway. Uh, so it just almost takes falling on your face a couple of times and then you learn what your limits are. Uh, but the more that I dig into like sales, the sales craft, especially selling to larger companies, the more I realize that it's a, it takes a village. It's a team effort. It's not me alone. I'm the, I can be the, the coordinator, the quarterback, whatever you want to call it, the you know, project manager of a deal cycle. 
but it's almost better and more credible when I hand the the microphone off to somebody who can speak credibly and can really show that or prove that. So that's a good rule of thumb. I think to pull it back in and answer the question, if you can't prove what you're talking about in some way or show it, then you probably shouldn't talk about it. Leave that to an engineer. Yeah. Leave that to a solutions consultant, leave that to a leader, you know, a member of your technical leadership or product team. But if you can demo it or talk, like if you, if you can answer a technical question and then show what you're talking about, then, you know, you're technical enough to talk about it. And I don't think that that will take away the credibility, but if you're just talking and you're like, oh yeah, we can totally integrate with these five systems. And this is, we're, we're going to do it with APIs, but you don't really back that up with any substance you're going to lose credibility pretty quickly. And I've literally done this in my career and that's how I know. So I, I think that's, that's spot on. Like if you can't show it, <laughs> then yeah. you probably shouldn't talk. I mean, use your, use your best judgment. But I, I think about like, um, you know, if you've got a, a real platform and mm -hmm. you know that there's something that can be done to solve a problem. You know, I remember, um, you know, back in the day being able to fire up and, you know, build some business rules on the fly using the product. And I could show that. And that was a really valuable conversation. It helped keep the pace of the sales cycle so that we yeah. didn't have to bring in somebody, but I could show it. I could say, here, here's how you do it. And you walk them through, you walk the buyer through that real quickly. Um, you know, sometimes though, it is nice to kind of control the pace of a sales cycle Maybe you need to get more information. You haven't completely filled out enough of the, whatever process you use to move on to the next stage. Um, and you can use a technical call to help get more information. You know, you can have, sometimes there's value in slowing the a cycle down. You kinda, yeah. There's the, the slowing down to go fast sort of line that I think about a lot. And with so, and by the way, I think in the next, what, three to five to, well, let's just, let's just go by five-year time horizons. Cause again, we don't yeah. want to try to predict things that are going to happen in 20 years, but for the next three to five years, I mean, for the next five years, let's just call it that with the, there's going to be more applications that AEs and, and sales reps are going to need to know more about. So Mm -hmm. One trend that you'll spot if you go out and research what's hot in SaaS right now, and David, you know all about this now, is the no-code, low-code, no-code applications. Yep. And then, you know, we came from a product that was a, we had a drag and drop element to a very, you know, it was a very technical automation builder or bot builder that built, you know, uh, a chat bot basically, but you could do that with a drag and drop interface, not having to know any code, not having to know how to build an integration between, you know, that and other software applications, you could actually drag and drop those and use, you know, no code, low code solutions to do that. So I think the trend will be that AEs will be expected to know more about the technical and, and especially the why to your point earlier, uh, but we'll need to know more about how to demo technical aspects of the product and by technical Fortunately, the technical aspects are getting easier and easier because of drag and drop, because of low code, no code. And this is coming from a guy who I've demoed products where it required me to actually code something in a terminal on the command line. Like that was hard as hell. And I don't <laughs> think AEs should have done that. I don't think I should have been in that position, by the way. I mean, I'm glad I was because it was really interesting, but I think I probably lost a lot of credibility with my coding chops in front of, you know, prospective DevOps buyers. 
But uh, with low code, no code, drag and drop, you know, with e- even the, the company I work for now, the, the system is very, very intuitive, very straightforward and easy to use. And so there's no reason an AE should not be able to demo, uh, you know, at least on the you know kind of first, second or third level of, of expertise on it. Of course, when it gets into things like integrations or, uh, you know, like data streaming applications and those kind of things, of course, I think you want to bring in someone who can speak more credibly about that and someone who can back to my earlier point, actually back up what they're talking about by showing it or proving it in some way. But yeah, that's, uh, that's what I see as the, the trend. I'm curious, you know, what your take is on low code, no code and the rise of AEs doing a lot of their own demoing. I, um, well, I think, you know, uh, we know that there's going to be that there is enormous constraints on enterprise dev resources, and so how do you how do you uh, skirt those dev resources? Is you build something that line of business users can can uh, can hack on, um, and if line of business folks can hack on a or can build something in a no code low code platform, then the AE should definitely be able to do it because that's sort of like that's kind of the the proof point is that well. If the dumb sales guy can can build it, then you know our team of analysts or or business leaders they can build it too. Um, yeah, and uh, yeah, I am. Um, I'm certainly all in on the the no code low code uh, platform and, and space. Um, there's there's something there for sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, but you, you, you I, it's really interesting. I I didn't really think about that, but. Um, yeah, that the expectation for AEs is going to, um, is going to, to rise for sure. Yeah. And anecdotally, Uh, anecdotally, I, so I I just started in a new role and I'm learning the product, uh, which, you know, the training I've been going through has been a lot more in depth than what I've been previously exposed to, because this is a bigger company, uh, than what I've typically, you know, I've typically, typically been in pretty early stage startups where, product training was more about shadowing someone technical or on the product team or IT team or dev team. Uh, but this has been a pretty good training. And yeah, I think that the the way that they're positioning this is like, once I'm out in the wild selling deals, I'll be responsible for a good amount of, of the demo aspects unless, you know, until it gets to a certain threshold where, you know, I, I again, can't prove it as an AE because it does require some building or some showcasing how it would be built. And where that seems, what I've noticed is where that seems to be the case is definitely in integrations. And I've brought that up a few times now, APIs, integrations, and then customizations, and then also security type stuff. So like SAML, if you're not familiar with SAML, you can go Google that. I think it's something security architecture markup language or something. Um, But that's like SSO or single sign-on. So those kind of things start to get into the realm of like cybersecurity and that an AE has pretty much no business trying to give advice on cybersecurity. And <laughs> I guess unless you work for one of the big cybersecurity players and you've been through trainings and you have the, the chops to, to speak about it. Um, but most SaaS applications have some element of like, this needs to be, you know, secured. Uh, and, you know, I think at the high level, most people are trained to do it, but Anyway, I'm, you know, case by case. And, and if you work in SaaS right now, you kind of know what your technical limitations are. But the key point here being, if you can learn to go maybe a level or two deeper than your peers, uh, I think that it will end up helping you sell more deals and it'll help you build happier customers 
because you're going to be a real partner to them versus just the, the AE we worked with for a few months to get this deal done. You're going to be, you know, a business partner and it all ties back into, you know, how do you approach SaaS sales like a business operator and not just a salesperson because a business operator would go well beyond just closing the deal and signing the paperwork. They want to make sure that there's use cases and that there's technical business cases to be solved for and that the customer is going to be satisfied with the purchase. I think that's sort of the philosophy. And I know that's your philosophy too, is, you know, we're not trying to sell deals that just churn out the door in 12 months. You're trying to build long-term business partnerships that, you know, solve technical challenges that solve business challenges and that ultimately everybody's happy with. So. No, hundred percent. I mean, it's really, um, if you've ever turned a customer, it doesn't feel great. Right. It's not so good. Um, I like to, to not have that happen. Um, I forget who it was. I think it's somebody that, you know, um, was talking about, you know, I mean, our, our integrity is at stake here too. Um, you know, these relationships persist past, you know, maybe you worked for the same company for 20 years, fit on you. Um, but you know, you're still known in the industry and you're either going to be seen as somebody who's trustworthy or not. Um, yeah. I do think though that there is um, there is value, even if you know the question, even if you know the answer, you don't necessarily have to say it. Um, and That's even if point. even if you know how to say it in a really humble way, sometimes it is sometimes it is just like you can make the strategic decision to say, you know what, let's let's bring in somebody else, let's bring in a technical resource. They're going to be much more equipped. Uh, to speak to this particular issue than I am. That and that's a good point. Yeah. Go ahead. You know, there's there's being knowledgeable, but then there's also being trustworthy. Sometimes those things those two things go hand in hand. But you it is a little bit of an art form to try and figure out when it's best to deploy knowledge and not. It's like a game of chess. You have to be thinking about will this trigger something else later on that's going to negatively or positively impact the the deal cycle. And I, I've heard the same advice from decorated sales veterans who've been doing this for a long time is even if you know the answer, sometimes it's best to put that back on a technical resource because you also still want to brand and position yourself as at the end of this cycle, ultimately my job is going to be to negotiate and finalize all of the paperwork on this. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to be distracted or you don't want to let yourself go down a deep rabbit hole of... I'm also the technical expert, but now I have to put my sales hat back on or my negotiator hat back on and get this done. So I think there is a strategy or, you know, a chess move in that sense that is, I know the answer to this, but I'm going to let the right people answer it because I have to continue to brand myself as the, the negotiator here. And I have a specific position that I play in this game and I don't want to be pivoting back and forth between two or three different things. Yeah. And, and, and to your point, you know, like sometimes it's, we, we can answer the question, but we, you know, it, it just needs more than us. Um, I think it's helpful as a seller to know our limitations <laughs> um, yeah. and, and, and just think about it, you know, put yourself in the buyer's shoes. You know, do you want, do you want the sales guy always answering the question or you know, maybe it's something deeper and you've got this, this is from uh, what is um, Skip Miller always talks about the why behind the why. Mm-hmm. Um, and we may not always be able to answer the why behind the why, or like the, the why behind the why behind the why. I can't remember how many whys he talks about. I think it's maybe three, but, <laughs> yeah. um, uh, but yeah, it, 
maybe that's a separate conversation that you need to run in parallel um, that can be best supported by by a technical resource. Um, we've gone uh, we've gone way <laughs> way off. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna I was gonna say we should probably wrap it up. Um, what what final any final words of wisdom from 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 David Nakano for anyone out there who's selling for anyone out there who's trying to get into SaaS sales. Uh, for anyone out there who's looking ahead at 2022 and saying, how, how am I going to make my, my biggest year yet? How am I going to accomplish whatever goals I have to accomplish? What other uh, parting thoughts will you uh, provide us? Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah, as I think about uh, our relationship and how valuable you've been to me as a seller and growing as a seller, you know, the recommendation that I've got for, for other folks that are in, in sales is don't, don't do it by yourself. Don't do it alone. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very thankful to have, have a good relationship with you, Jesse. I feel like we've learned a lot from each other. Um, yeah. but selling is, selling is really hard to do on your own. You know, you're going to get, you just get rejected a lot. You're going to lose a lot of money. Um, mm-hmm. you make, you make a lot of money too. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, I, it, it's, I think a lot of, and I think this is, this is good advice for life in general, but it's best done in community when you can celebrate with others, like truly um, you sincerely celebrate with others, ce- celebrate other people for their successes. Uh, and then also, you know, have folks that you can go to and, uh, that are when, when something really crummy happens, uh, you know, when, when shit hits the fan, um, you need, you're going to need people in your corner. Uh, so if we've learned anything from the last couple of years, it's just don't, don't do it alone. That is, I haven't really heard that put to words and I've just sort of habitually done that throughout my whole career, not really realizing why, but that really summed it up in an interesting way, which is, yes, if, if you're trying to, to one, get into SaaS sales or you're in SaaS sales and you're trying to hit your number this year and you don't have confidants, if you will, or, or you know, business partners. I, I don't know. I don't know what our title would be, David, but I know we, we, we riff a bunch. We talk, you know, <laughs> so we, when we work together, we were talking every day for a long time. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, and you know, and we both have other people like that too, that we call yeah. all the time. And I think a lot of people think like, Oh, a mentor has to be someone who's, you know, 10, 20 years ahead of me in their career. And I don't think that's necessarily true. Sometimes a mentor can be someone who's less experienced than you, but is, found a way to optimize or do things faster or better. Uh, or, you know, a mentor can be someone who's only maybe a year or two ahead of you that has just a few more sneak peeks at what's around the corner for yourself. But then I think it is also, you know, valuable to have someone in your network that's 10, 20, 30 years in this business or, or any business that can point to new ideas or an old perspective based, I shouldn't say old, uh, you know, a, a legacy perspective, <laughs> I'll use a tech word for it, a legacy perspective of how things get done. And then, you know, a novel perspective, maybe you have someone who's a quote unquote mentor, who's like one year into this, who's really killer at it. So uh, mentors can come in all shapes and sizes. I don't know if ours is a mentorship type relationship, but I, I would call it more just like a, a business partnership and a collective of some sort. We're like a mastermind. And I think we, you know, brain trust. A brain trust. I like that. And, and especially as you start to get into like slower, longer term deals, when you can get really impatient and you can start to kind of go crazy because, you know, when you're going even four five, six months or longer to close a deal, everything gets questioned, everything gets scrutinized. And so it's really important to have someone in your network that you can call and say, all right, here's what happened this week on this deal. And look, everyone's going to have a manager and probably a board that's going to be asking the same questions about these things, but it's, it's helpful to have a peer 
who can, you know, a brain trust who can like just give you a, a second opinion on something. Uh, and whether that's career moves or deals or, you know, shit going on with your manager, shit going on with your CEO, whatever it is, right. it's just important to have that, that relationship. So that's really great advice is find other people that you can talk to on a very frequent basis and bounce ideas off of, because really this is a creative career field and we're all creators in a way too. So we're business operators, we're investors, and now I'm weaving in that we're creators too. You have to sort of keep creating content. You've got to keep creating ideas and visions and you need people to help with that because if you try to do it all alone in a vacuum, you're going to tip over pretty quickly. Yeah, you just you just go crazy, especially if you're working remote. I mean, look, I'm based in Bozeman and we didn't even get to how cool, well, don't move to Bozeman. It's not a cool town. Um <laughs> So just kind of put that out Agreed. there. Agreed. Stay out of Bozeman. Stay out of Bozeman. Um, but uh, yeah, we didn't even get to the fact that there's, you know, there's like we're standing on, you know, I, I'd hate to say the shoulders of giants, but um, you know, we, we've been able to to work in a distributed way, which is great and it's awesome. Um, yeah. But if, if you're working remote every day and uh, you don't have the the sort of constant contact that you would with normally in an office it's really good to find somebody that you can give a call and just be like, Hey man, this one, I'm, this one I'm looking at today. Or even if it's just like, man, can you believe what's going on in the world? Um, you kind of got to get out of your, your, your space for a second. Uh, if you're going to maintain any sort of sense of sanity. Love it, man. Well, uh, thanks again for coming on and sharing. I think we're going to have you back on the show again soon. Uh, this is very, very valuable and fun for me to, to get this on recording. And uh, yeah, man, happy new year. And uh, we'll talk. Happy new year. Talk to you soon. 